Please turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you're visiting with us today or if you're new to Midtown, our regular practice is to preach through books of the Bible from start to finish. And so we started in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11, working our way through the life of King David. And this morning we come to one of the more important moments in David's life, though we must admit it is not a positive one. As you can see there in your Bibles, 2 Samuel 11 is the account of David and Bathsheba. You probably know this story. Most people do. But let's not be too familiar not to learn from God's Word this morning. Let's give our attention now to the Scriptures as we read from God's Word. You can follow along with me. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliah, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and he did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. 
And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerebosheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask the Holy God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's let's pray. Father, we do acknowledge that You are the Holy God. Your Scriptures tell us that it's a Terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we know, Father, that as the living God, You have spoken very clearly in Your Word. And Your Word tells us the truth about who we are and who You are. And we pray, Father, that even in passages such as these, You would give us grace that we might know the truth and that we might be humble enough to receive the truth, Father, with soft and open hearts and open ears, and that You would do Your work among us today. Father, I pray that You would keep me from error, and I pray that You would grant Your people discernment, that we would hear the Word of God as we ought, and that we would be humble beneath it, and that we would believe what Your Word says to be true. Give us grace now, Father, we ask. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Most people know David from one of two events in his life. The first would be David and Goliath. That memorable moment of triumph from 1 Samuel 17. It was a gigantic victory for David over a gigantic foe. The other event is the one before us in this chapter. David and Bathsheba. It's the other end of the spectrum from David and Goliath. If Goliath was a gigantic victory, then David with Bathsheba is an equally gigantic failure. There's no way around it, friends. You can't explain away David's actions in this chapter. You can't justify any of his decisions. Not a single one of them. 
This is David at his worst. And it's awful. It's so awful, in fact, that it causes you to stop and ask, how does David go from the mountaintop of victory in 1 Samuel 17 to the pit of abject failure in 2 Samuel 11? How does that happen? It is such a precipitous fall from Goliath to Bathsheba. How do you explain it? How does David get here? The answer, friends, is sin. And I don't mean sin out there in the world that snares us and draws us down into the pit. That's a reality, but please hear me clearly. That is not what I'm talking about today when I say sin. I don't mean sin out in the world. I mean sin in here. In the human heart. Sin that is left unchecked and spreads and craves and plunges you deeper until you cannot remember who you are. You see, that's the purpose of this passage, brothers and sisters. 2 Samuel 11 is a reminder that each of us carries an enemy within ourselves. Our fallen, sinful nature. And even after conversion, if sin goes unchecked, it can wreck the best of us. If David can fall, then so can you and I. This is the man after God's own heart. That doesn't change in this chapter. This is the anointed king of Israel. That doesn't change in this chapter. This is the one through whom the Messiah will come. And still, this godly man falls in a spectacular series of failures. If David can fall, then so can you and I. And if it sounds like I'm coming on strong this morning, then good, because I mean to. I thought about beginning the sermon today with a number of examples of powerful people in our culture who have fallen in sexual sin. And sadly, a contemporary list was not hard to come up with. In fact, it was quite long. But then I was struck by the fact that focusing on powerful people actually minimizes the force of the text. If I just think about powerful people who fall, then I can keep God's Word at arm's length. I can keep it from pressing in on my life. I'm not a powerful person in the world's eyes. It's only those Hollywood bigwigs, right? And those DC elites that need to hear this passage. Us regular folks, this isn't the world we live in. This isn't who we are. But that's just it, friends. This is who we are by nature. We are prone to wander. And we do still carry around inside of us that sinful self that craves what does not belong to us. And until we come to grips with that, until we come to grips with the enemy within, we have not listened to 2 Samuel 11 as we ought. Please do not stand at a distance and tisk tisk at David. That's not the point of this passage. Friends, I was convicted this week about how lackadaisical I can get in the fight against sin. I was, I was convicted and it was hard, but I trust it was also good. And therefore, that's what I'm aiming at for all of us 
this morning is a whole sermon about sin. I'm going to make three points about sin today. And I pray God would do what He needs to do among us as we listen. So if you're running the race of the Christian life well, then I pray this text would encourage you to keep going. To keep running hard. If you're coasting in the Christian life, I pray this text would convict you over how dangerous that is. And if you're somewhere in the middle between running hard and coasting, I pray this text would compel you to make war with all of your might against that enemy within. So it's not a cheery chapter. It's not a cheery chapter. But I do pray it will be a fruitful one by God's grace. Before we get to the details of the text, I want to point out two big picture observations as a whole about the chapter. I want to point out these two big picture points to you because they'll help clarify the specifics. They'll help clarify some of the things I'm going to say and some of the things I'm not going to say. Okay, so just two big picture points at first. First of all, you'll notice the passage is sparse in terms of personal details. Many people are thrown off in this chapter by asking questions the text does not answer. What was Bathsheba thinking or feeling? We don't know. How much did Uriah know about what was going on? We don't know. To answer those questions, you've got to speculate. And speculation is never a good strategy for interpreting the Bible. In terms of emotion or psychology or any sort of interpersonal feelings, the passage doesn't say much. So we, we shouldn't try to make it say more. It's sparse in terms of personal details. That leads into that, the second big picture point. The chapter is singular in terms of focus. What we're meant to see in chapter 11 are David's sinful actions. It's singular in terms of focus. That's why the personal details are so sparse. Because the focus is on what David does. How David acts. It's not that the author is callous toward the other characters. Please do not assume the Bible is indifferent. It's not. The Bible is not indifferent. But Scripture's burden here is for us to see and wrestle with the fact that this is all on David. You can't put it anywhere else. It's just on David. The king, the king for goodness sakes, falls into sin. And the text puts the spotlight on that. So, sparse on the personal details and singular in terms of focus. Keeping those big points in mind will help you as we consider the specifics. And let's do that now. Let's turn our attention to the events of the passage. As I said just a moment ago, it's not a cheery chapter. So each of the realities we need to see is connected with the presence of sin. The first comes in verses 1-5 to where we see the anatomy of sin. The anatomy of sin. Many of you probably remember those high school science experiments where you had to dissect some specimen in order to see its inner workings? Well, this, these opening verses are somewhat like that. Here we enter the laboratory of David's life and we get an up-close picture of the inner workings of sin. We can dissect it and we can see how sin operates in and upon the human heart. But before we get to that 
dissection were immediately met with a surprise. We might expect David's fall to begin in verse 2 when he sees Bathsheba. But that's not where it starts. It begins in verse 1 with negligence. Notice again what the text says. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. And then the last line, David remained at Jerusalem. It's springtime, which means the rainy season has ended in Israel. So the armies can go out and march to war and Israel can continue its war against the Ammonites. That's what kings did in the spring. They led their troops out to fight. That's not what King David does. He stays behind. The palace is more comfortable than a battlefield tent. So why not just let Joab handle this campaign? Joab's more than capable. Joab's ruthless. He can handle it. And with that decision, David neglects his responsibility. Friends, I don't want to press this too far as though this were the simplistic explanation for everything that follows. But it is instructive, isn't it? If David had marched out with the army like kings were supposed to do, he would never have seen Bathsheba. Whatever else happens, it does begin in the negligence of verse 1. Friends, we're going to have a lot to say this morning about the fight against sin, but I do hope we see here how valuable it is to simply and faithfully do what God has given you to do day in and day out. Meeting your God-given responsibilities is one of the ways we fight for holiness. Of course, there are other ways we need to fight. We need to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. We need to take up the sword of the Spirit. But along with that, we need to recognize the sanctifying value of simply doing what God has called us to do. Put it this way, if you are busy in the work God has given you to do, then you'll have less time to stroll the palace rooftop. Right? So let this be an encouragement to us, friends. Meeting tomorrow's responsibilities is more than completing a to-do list. Waking up on time, going to work, doing your chores, going to bed early enough to get enough sleep. That's not just good health. That's good sanctification. Fighting against sin can be a means of grace to keep us walking in holiness. David, however, ignores that means of grace. He's negligent in verse 1. And that negligence creates the context for sinful desire to arise. Notice verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. See, he's just taking it easy. He arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Now remember, the personal details are sparse. So don't read into Bathsheba's decision more than what the text says. The issue is not Bathsheba. The issue is David's lust. Think about it, friends. David should have done an about-face and marched right back into the palace. But he lingers. He watches. He indulges. And as he does that, sinful desire takes root. Then notice what happens verse 3. David's sinful desire gives birth to a sinful pursuit. Instead of fleeing, David asks for more information. This is not an innocent question, friends. This is an active question. A pursuing, grasping, wanting, 
question. David pursues what he desires. Verse 3, And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David is under no illusions. This is another man's wife. And God's Word was specific. Exodus 20, verse 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. But David's sinful desire has taken root. Lust has given birth to covetousness. And now David is hurtling headlong after his sinful pursuit. Then comes verse 4. David's pursuit bears the awful fruit of sinful action. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Did you notice that verb took? David took her. It carries the idea of seizing something that does not belong to you. It's actually the same verb that is used in Genesis 3 to describe Eve's decision in the garden. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes, she took of its fruit and she ate. Eve saw, Eve wanted, Eve took. David sees, David wants, so David takes for himself. This is sin's nature, friends. This is sin's anatomy. It takes root in sinful desire. That desire brings forth sinful pursuit. And that pursuit bears fruit in sinful action. Desire, pursuit, action. David lusts, he covets, and he commits adultery. Now let me ask you friends, knowing what we do about sin's anatomy here, desire, pursuit, action, if you were constructing a battle plan, where is the best place to make your defense? Where's the most strategic place to aim your counterattack? Well, naturally, of course, the answer is at the first sign of weakness, at the point of sinful desire. And yet, most of the time, where do we aim? Where do we focus? Only on the action. Only, only on the last step. But think about it, friends. By the time Bathsheba arrives to David's bedroom in verse 4, the battle is basically over. I mean, sure, David could change course, but that's not likely to happen. The best place for David to, have fight, to fight would be where? On the rooftop. <laughs> On the rooftop, the moment he sees Bathsheba in the distance. In that moment, instead of lingering, he should have run. Instead of watching, he should have fled. Instead of indulging himself, he should have begged God for mercy. Friends, if we reduce the battle against sin to only the instance of action, then we're fighting a losing battle. This is, I will contend, the most pressing takeaway from these opening verses. If your only point of resistance is the moment when you have to decide, do I do it or not? Then you're missing the most strategic point in the fight. It's not the moment of action, as important as that is. It's not the moment Bathsheba is standing in the doorway. The most strategic point is the rooftop. The moment of desire. Or to say it another way, the most strategic front in the war against sin is our own hearts. The Bible teaches that the heart is the control center of human life. 
our desires originate in the heart, and what we desire often dictates what we pursue and then how we act. The heart is the command center. And therefore, if we want to kill sin, we have to fight where David failed. We have to fight on the rooftop at the point of desire. We have to fight at the level of the heart. It's not enough just to fight against actions. We need to fight at the level of the heart. Now, that might sound a little abstract to you, to fight at the level of the heart. I can't see my heart. I can't get down in there. I, I, I can't plug something in. It might sound a little abstract to say that you have to fight at the level of the heart. So let me give you a practical example of what this might look like in real life. And I could easily use an example of sexual temptation, like the one we have in this passage, because those examples are so vivid. But they're also too narrow. So I want to pick something that's a little bit more mundane because I think it better illustrates just how practical this is. So, let's say it's the end of a long work day. It's the end of a long work day and on the drive home, I'm really looking forward to putting my feet up and enjoying some peace and quiet. In fact, I'm pretty sure that I deserve to be able to do that seeing as I have put in a full day working hard to provide for my family. I want a break No, better yet, I need a break. That's what I'm thinking. Then as I get home and open the front door, I'm greeted by a pack of rowdy children armed with Nerf guns chasing each other down the hallway. And as I listen to my peace and quiet evaporate in that Nerf gun battle, I unload. I let loose an angry tirade about cleaning up this mess and calming down, and I snatch the Nerf guns away, and I put them up in the closet, and I say, you're never going to get those again. All the while muttering under my breath about how hard I've worked that day. Now, I've just lost the battle against sin, haven't I? I've been angry. I've been harsh. And worst of all, I've abused my authority as a parent. But here's the key. I did not lose that battle at the front door when the Nerf dart hit me in the face. I lost it in the car when I stewed in my selfish desire for a break. I lost it when I failed to resist the temptation to think only about myself. Now, could I have stood in the doorway and counted to ten in hopes of keeping my cool? Sure, you can try that. But that's like putting a a band-aid on a bullet wound. Eventually, it's going to open up again. Where I needed to fight, where I should have been fighting, was in the car at the moment of desire. At that first moment that it came into my mind that I deserved a break, I should have said, Lord, remind me that selfishness is waging war against my soul. Remind me right now that the Lord Jesus came to not be served, but to serve and to lay down His life for other people. I want to just think about me, God. Help me to think about others that You've given me to serve. That's where I should have been fighting. That's how I should have been fighting. Not when I first walk in the door, but the minute the desire for selfishness seeps into my heart. It's not my kid's fault. It's not my wife's fault. That sin rests at my feet for not resisting the temptation. If we want to fight most strategically, we have to fight at the point of desire. We have to fight at the level of the heart. 
So how about you, friends? Do you wait for the moment of action before you try to resist sin? Do you wait until it's just that moment that you have to decide, do I do it or not? Or are you fighting on the rooftop at that initial point, the moment of desire? Listen, there's a reason Psalm 119 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It doesn't say that I've written it on cards and put it out here where my hands are acting. It says I've put it in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's a reason that's what Psalm 19, 119 says. It's because the battle against sin is so often won or lost, not out there in the world, but in here, at the level of desire. You see, that's what's so sobering about these verses. David failed on the rooftop long before he got to the bedroom. So let's make that our aim, brothers and sisters. By all means, let's resist sinful actions. Please don't hear me as saying it doesn't matter what you do. That's the opposite of what I'm saying. Let's resist sinful actions, but let's not stop there. Let's go deeper as well, and let's fight where David failed. Let's listen and heed what this text says. Let's fight where David failed at that very first moment that sinful desire rears its ugly head. That's how you fight against the anatomy of sin. Well, the first four verses are bad enough for David, aren't they? But as we continue on in the chapter, we see that things get worse. And by David's own doing, Bathsheba speaks in verse 5 for the only time in the chapter. And her message rocks David to the core. Notice again verse 5. And the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. David now has an enormous problem. There is evidence of his sin growing in flesh and blood in Bathsheba's womb. What's more, Bathsheba has a massive problem. If she's found to be pregnant while her husband is away, she very likely will be killed as an adulterer. This is what sin does, friends. It wrecks havoc in people's lives. So what will the king do? He doesn't confess. Instead, in verses 6-25, to David sets out on a deliberate, deceptive scheme to cover his tracks. We'll call this reality the spiral of sin. The spiral of sin. Having given in to sin, David now spirals downward. Please note this, brothers and sisters. Sin is progressive. This is what I want us to see here. It doesn't stop at the first failure. It doesn't stop with adultery for David. No, sin spirals downward as David's sinful heart desperately seeks to cover his tracks. You can follow the spiral. It's not pretty, but we need to see it. The first level is deception. Notice verse 6 and following. David has a plan. He tells Joab to send Uriah the Hittite home from the front. David pretends to be interested in the battle in verse 7, but what he really wants is for Uriah to go home and see his wife. The language is discreet in verse 8, but you can read behind the euphemism. With Uriah having been gone for so long, David expects the man will be thrilled to see his wife. And in doing so, David's sin will be covered up. They can pass the child off as Uriah's child. But then something unexpected happens. Uriah the Hittite, notice that he's frequently identified by his ethnicity, Uriah the Hittite 
displays more integrity than David, the king of Israel. Uriah doesn't go home, verse 9, but instead he sleeps at the door of the king's house. You see, Uriah considers himself still on duty. He may be home from the front, but that doesn't change his responsibility. He's still a soldier. His job is still to protect the king. So he sleeps at the king's door. In fact, notice Uriah's statement in verse 11. This is the only time the man talks in all of the Bible. And you can hear the sense of honor in his voice. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Friends, do you hear the irony in Uriah's words? Here we have a Hittite displaying more God-honoring character than an Israelite. In fact, one commentator that I really enjoy said, there's only one Israelite in this chapter, and he's a Hittite. It's such a striking contrast. David had no right to be with Uriah's wife, but David took her anyway. Uriah has every right to go home to his wife, but he denies himself in order to fulfill his responsibility. Still, David is not deterred. Notice verse 13. He's desperate. He gets Uriah drunk, thinking that surely if the man's drunk, he will give in and go home. Still, Uriah does not go. Even when he's drunk, this Hittite displays more self-control than the king of David. David was sober when he walked into sin. Uriah is drunk walking in righteousness. It's such a striking contrast. So, deception doesn't work, which means David spirals further downward to murder. Notice verse 14 and following. David writes a letter to Joab telling him to put Uriah at the front and then draw back so that Uriah is killed in the battle. Now that's despicable and cowardly enough, but then notice how David sends the letter to Joab. Verse 14, he has Uriah deliver it. Uriah has demonstrated such character that David knows this man won't dare open the letter. I mean, it's reprehensible. David has already stolen the man's wife, and now he has the man deliver his own death sentence. David sends Uriah to his death. And that's what happens. Verse 17. Joab improves on the plan a little bit. He sends some other men with Uriah so that they won't arouse suspicion. It's just going to look like another day in the fighting. But this is anything but normal. David's plan works. And Uriah the Hittite is killed. From a rooftop glance to murder, David spirals downward. And it's not over yet. The spiral has one final level, hard-heartedness. Notice verse 22 and following. Joab preps his messenger for how he should report to David. And in verse 24, the messenger delivers the key piece of intel. Notice the last line, verse 24. And your servant, your servant... Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So there's the reality. Staring David in the face. Uriah, one of his faithful servants, is dead. And David is responsible. If there were anything that might shake David out of this spiral, you would think that this would be it. It's one thing to plan this all out, but now the dirty deed is done and the reality is inescapable. Surely, David will wake up now, right? No, sadly he doesn't. Verse 25 is one of the more callous 
and hard-hearted statements you will read anywhere in the Bible. Notice what David says. Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. tell Tell Joab, don't worry about it. Don't lose any sleep. Just keep doing what you do, and everything will be fine. It's so heartless, isn't it? David even attempts to pass it off as just the randomness of battle. You know, sometimes this person dies, sometimes that person dies. Don't worry about it. Joab read the letter. Don't worry about it. This is what sin does, friends. It hardens the heart. It hardens the heart. It makes us cold and indifferent to the things of God and to those made in His image. Man, it's one thing to wreck your own life in sin. It is an entirely another thing to take another image bearer of God and wreck their life too on purpose. This is what sin does. It hardens your heart until you can't feel the way you're supposed to feel. What a tragic downward spiral. Adultery, deception, murder, hard-heartedness. And I'll say it again, friends. This is how sin works. It is progressive. And the direction is always downward. Please, do not think this was only true of David. Please do not keep this passage at arm's length. God's Word is speaking to all of us today. Pleading with us, in fact, not to toy around with sin. Listen, I would be unfaithful as a pastor, if I didn't stop here and urge you to consider your life. What I'm about to say to you, I'm saying to myself as much as I'm saying it to you. Do not keep sin in the dark. Do not try to cover it up. Bring it into the light because in a very real sense, it will only get worse if you keep it hidden. It will only get worse. Yes, there will be difficulty in confession. And yes, there will be consequences for what you have done. But there will also be life. There will also be life. Remember what Rodrigo preached to us last week from Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Not only is sin progressive, it's also corrosive. It eats away at you until you don't work right. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. But then I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Confession is hard, but it leads to life, friends. Sin spirals downward. We're seeing it here in David's life. Oh, how kind of God that He doesn't just give us doctrinal formulations about the the issues of sin. He shows us in someone's life so you can see it. You can see the carnage. Do you want this in your life? I don't want it in my life. I plead with you today. Consider your life. Right now, ask God by His Holy Spirit, show me what I'm hiding. Show me where the darkness lingers. And give me strength to bring it into the light. Ask Him right now. Where do I need to confess? Is there anything that I'm hiding? Bring it into the light. That's what the church is for, by the way. That's why we're all in this room together. Because we're all sinners who need each other's help. Too often we act like 
church is for people who have it all together. But that's not the case, friends. If church was for people who have it all together, I wouldn't be here. The church is for sinners who are regularly repenting and trusting in the gospel. So if the Lord is convicting you right now that you have something that you need to bring into the light, well then praise God. That means you've got your church membership card ready. You're repenting and believing. That's what the church is for. So I'm just going to urge you again, consider your life. Bring into the light anything that we may be hiding. David is showing us here the horrible spiral of sin how I pray God will give us grace to break the spiral with confession. The anatomy of sin, the spiral of sin. So far, everything we've considered has been in relationship to David. In fact, there's been no mention of God whatsoever. Did Did you notice that, friends? Perhaps part of the reason for David's fall is that he's taken his eyes off the Lord. But the closing verses of the chapter bring us God's perspective. And we'll we'll conclude with this. 2 Samuel 11 ends with the verdict on sin. The verdict on sin. At first it looks like David will get away with his despicable plan. Notice verse 26. Makes your stomach turn. Following Bathsheba's time of mourning, David takes her to be his wife. A son is born. And no one seems the wiser as to what David has done. It appears David will get away with it. But not so fast. Notice the last sentence. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David may have fooled other people, but he has not fooled God. David may have hidden his sin from the eyes of others, but he cannot hide it from the eyes of the Lord. God sees. God always sees. And God is displeased. That translation is not strong enough actually. It should read, and the thing David did was evil before the Lord. It's the same word that's used to describe the men of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis. They wanted to do evil to the angelic messengers. Now David, King David, joins in that Sodom and Gomorrah-like party. It's evil. And God sees. This is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the chapter ends with David in the Lord's hands. That's what we're meant to see. The chapter ends with David in the Lord's hands. And God will deal with him, as we will see in chapter 12. But I'd like to conclude this morning with this thought. It should astonish us that God does not strike David dead in verse 27. Honestly, friends, it should astonish us that God does not strike David dead in verse 27. Consider the patience and mercy and grace of God at this point. Why does the Lord withhold His wrath from David? Because He's not finished with David. Because He's merciful and He's patient. And in His kindness to such a vile sinner... God is preparing the way for repentance. You see, as hard as this chapter is, friends, I want to end by stressing to you that there is a way back from even the deepest, darkest spiral of sin. There is a way back. 
It's true that sin is evil and heinous and displeases the Lord. But here's the astonishing good news. In the Bible, sin doesn't have the final word. God does. The fact that David is still breathing at the end of this chapter is a reminder to us that God is patient. The fact that you and I are still breathing this morning shows us that God is merciful. And in His mercy, He has made a way back for vile sinners like David and like you and like me. And that way back is through the blood of a Savior who laid down His life to pay for our sin and satisfy God's righteous wrath. So many times in our sermon series in Samuel, we have looked at David's life and we've seen how it shows us favorably a comparison with the Lord Jesus. There's no comparison here. There's only contrast. And that's good news. The way back is through the blood of a Savior who shed His blood to pay for our sin. Friends, let that be the final word you hear this morning. Please, let this be the last thing you hear me say. We need to fight against sin, especially on the battlefield of our hearts. We need to bring sin into the light and break that spiral. But most important of all, here it is. We need to remember that in His grace, God has not left sin with the final word. God has the final word. And that word is mercy to those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.